comes from Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 38. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers, Peter said to him. Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. You didn't. And here I have a quick announcement for us. <clears throat> As a church, we came up with four values. Our deacons uh, and staff met last fall. <clears throat> and one of those values is, is local ministry. Uh, we believe God is providence. Didn't just make Vine Street in, you know, uh, the stratosphere, but he put us at a location. And we believe God still has a purpose for us in reaching this neighborhood. Um, and so what we've decided to do is once a month, we are gonna have a time where we as a church simply walk out in the neighborhood and meet people and talk to people and try to get to know them. And obviously the goal is to talk to them about Jesus um, as a way to actually get into our neighborhood. And so that, that will begin uh, April 9th. It's gonna be the second Saturday of every month. Uh, we may change the date as we find which day most people are out, but I think a Saturday evening, if it's warm, people will be out and walking around. So we're gonna be at 6 p.m. Uh, here at the church, again, Saturday 9th. And then it'll be the second Sunday of May, sec, or sorry, second Saturday of May, June, July, August, all through. Um, now, some of us may not be able to go out and walk a neighborhood, but I would encourage you to come and, and pray in the sanctuary for what's happening. Um, because this is, this is part of our calling as a church. We believe the Spirit is with us, and, and we want to walk by the Spirit as we go out and try to meet our neighbors. <clears throat> so that's just a quick announcement. Again, April 9th, we'll be going at 6 p.m. We'll probably be out an hour, maybe an hour and a half and uh, be praying for that as we come closer. With that, let me open us again with a word of prayer. Father, how desperately we want to hear from you this morning. That's why we're here. That's why we come, because we believe in the living God who came as a man 2,000 years ago to take the sins of the world upon himself, that we might have life and might have life with you. And we believe in the depths of our being that when your word is read, it is not the words of just people or tradition, but it's the very voice of God. So God, may you speak powerfully this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I played soccer in high school. I was not very good because I was a latecomer to soccer, and the team I played with was pretty competitive. 
But in Pennsylvania, soccer, for men's soccer in high schools in the fall, I think in Kentucky it's actually the spring, but uh, that means that every August came the dreaded preseason, which is the three weeks leading up to the regular season where you had training, conditioning, preparation for the season. And the reason it was dreaded is because there were two-a-day practices, which meant you had a morning practice, that meant for me two, two and a half hours, and then you go home and nap and then come back and have some kind of conditioning training in the evening. Uh, we do two-mile time trials, we do sprints, we do long runs, all kinds of stuff. And, uh, and it, was a, it was a grueling three weeks. Now, again, this was a, 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 my high school team was fairly competitive, and, um, and it was expected that you would show up for preseason fit. And the reason is because if you weren't already at some base level of fitness, it was going to be hard for you to make it through those three weeks. And uh, sure enough, every year, there'd be a couple guys who'd show up who think that they could just muscle it through on, on just sheer athleticism. And the thing is, is, the first day, you couldn't tell who had trained and who hadn't, because most of these guys are 17, 18, good athletes. They just look like they're fit. But typically, around week two is when you started to see who had prepared. Because the guys who came without, you know, the guys who'd been sitting on their butt watching TV, playing video games, eating nachos all summer, around week two, they started injuring themselves. They get hamstring pulls, or they pull their quads, or they get shin splints, or just like they would, they would get slow, like they just weren't as quick as, as they were before because their body literally couldn't like rejuvenate itself enough to, to, to stay with it. Because again, you're practicing twice a day, it's just, it's a beating on your body. And in fact, my, my senior year, again, I, like, I couldn't compete talent-wise with the guys on my team, but I was a very hard worker, and so I would show up fit, and I actually got to start my senior year because one of our top defensive backs pulled his hamstring and was out for six weeks because uh, he showed up out of shape. Anyways, the point is, if you, you know, as you went through the kind of ordeal of preseason, it became clear who prepared for this and who kind of came without any preparation. Now, we're in Jesus' last teaching before his death. There's an urgency here. These are the last words he's sharing with the disciples before he dies on the cross. And so in this meal, he's eating a meal with them. He's given them the institution of the Lord's Supper. He's talked about leadership in the church, how leadership in the church must be different than leadership in the world. It's based on service and humility, not on power and authority. And then lastly, here he's trying to prepare his disciples for the trials that are coming. And what he's telling them is, look, if, if you're not prepared, just like the guys who came to preseason soccer, it's going to become evident. The trials will bring out whether you're prepared for this or not. And the trial that was coming, of course, was the crucifixion. But there's also a word in here for every Christian in every age throughout the history of the world. As we too will face trials and adversity, are we prepared for them? So the outline for us this morning, first point is going to be Peter's lesson the second point is uh, coming adversity. And the third point is Christ the King. So again, our first point here is, is Peter's lesson. Follow along as I read verses 31 to 34 again. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Jesus makes a prophecy about Peter here, and he begins it 
with this urgent Simon. Simon. There's, there's, a, there's a depth of feeling as Jesus speaks to Peter because Peter has no idea what is coming. He has no idea what is in store for him. He does not know that Satan himself will be going after Peter in the next 24 hours. Satan had made a request of Jesus to sift Peter like wheat. Uh, if you're not a farmer, such as me, this may not make a whole lot of sense to you, but the way sifting worked, it, when, you, when you harvest wheat, it's on a stalk, and the wheat kernels are actually in a hard shell, and so to get the wheat to make it into, into bread, you have to separate the kernels from what's called the chaff. And so the process first began, you'd lay all the stalks of wheat out on the ground, and you'd beat it with like a pitchfork or some kind of instrument, and then you'd put it all in a, in a, in a cloth sieve or a, a strainer, and then you'd shake it up violently, and that's supposed to separate the, uh, the, the kernels from the chaff. That's the image that Satan is, or that Jesus is giving to Peter what Satan has asked to be beaten, violently shaken, picked apart. Maybe a better kind of, you know, uh, idiom from us is to pick someone to pieces. Peter, Satan is asked to pick you to pieces. And what's interesting, this isn't as obvious in the English, but again, this was written in Greek, not English, but in Greek, in verse 32, Jesus uses a, a plural you, a y'all. Satan is asked to pick y'all to pieces. And then verse 33, he then reverts to singular, just to you, Peter. And so the idea is Satan is, is, is going after all the disciples. He's going to try to, he's, he, he's going to go after all of them to pick them all to pieces, but he's focusing on Peter. Why that is, we don't know. It could be that Peter is kind of a first among equals and the disciples, the thought is if Satan can get him to fall, it'll be devastating for the community. It could be that Peter is the most brash and, and self-confident. We don't know. But the point is Satan is coming after the disciples and he's starting with Peter. Now a question when you read this might come out, okay, if, if Satan has asked to pick Peter apart, why would Jesus, why wouldn't he just say no? <laughs> why would he allow the devil to sift Peter in this way. And the reason is that Peter had to learn a pretty crucial lesson. Peter was going to be a pillar in the church. He was going to be an apostle. Uh, Paul in Galatians calls him a pillar of the church. Uh, he was going to be the head of the church in Jerusalem. And before he could step into that kind of leadership role, there was something massively important that Peter had to learn, and this was the only way he was going to learn that, through Jesus allowing Satan to go after Peter. But you gotta understand that Jesus allows Satan to go after Peter to pick him apart, but it only goes so far. Jesus is like, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna allow Satan to sift you, but he will not be able to destroy you. It'll only go as far as it needs to go for Peter to learn this lesson, and that's as far as Jesus will allow this process to go. But what is this lesson that Peter needs to learn? Well, again, that's our first point here, and there's, there's actually three parts to this lesson. The first part of this lesson that Peter, who before he can become an apostle, what he must learn is that Peter is much weaker than he thinks he is. He's a lot weaker than he thinks he is. It's striking how much Peter exaggerates his strength versus then what it is revealed to be. Jesus, I'm going to go to prison with you. I will die with you. And then 12 hours later, he's denying he even knew who Jesus was. It's shocking. It's striking. It should make us pause. Think of it this way, okay? Marriages that fail 
if they went back to the moment at their altar, neither of them ever imagined one day our marriage will fail. One day, one of us will cheat on the other, whatever it might be. But some marriages do fail. But here's the thing. Usually, it's years in the making. Years of miscommunication, of, of, of refusing to offer forgiveness, of, of maybe even abuse, or, and over years, the marriage can drift. But no one fails three hours after giving their wedding vows. I, I've just never heard of this happening. Maybe I'm sure it has. But that's just, that, that's unheard of, that's shocking. No one stands at the altar, pledges undying fidelity, and then three hours later is committing infidelity against her spouse. That's what Peter's doing. Here is Peter, okay? And one thing we gotta remember too, Peter's not just any ordinary dude. Like he has walked with Jesus, he has labored with Jesus for three years. He has demonstrated amazing loyalty. Yes, he says harebrained stuff sometimes, so do we all. He stuck with Jesus. He was one that got out of the boat and walked on water for a bit. Um, he, again, is, 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 is first among equals. He's demonstrated his commitment to Jesus. He's at the height of his zeal. When Peter looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, I, I'm willing to die for you, I, I think he meant it in the depths of his heart. But yet 12 hours later, he's denying that he even knew who Jesus was. It would be like someone, again, standing at the altar, saying, I'm going to love you forever, meaning with every fiber of their being, and then 12 hours later, they're abandoning their spouse. What? My point in all this is, like, this should disturb us. Because Peter seemed so strong, and thought he was so strong, and his fall was so complete, and so fast, Peter was far weaker than he realized. And the problem was not his zeal. It's good to have a zeal for the Lord. The problem was the source of his trust. He's pretty sure, based on his own strength, that he's going to stick with Jesus to the end no matter what. That's the problem. And that's the second part of his lesson he needs to learn. Again, the first part, that he's weaker than he thinks he is. But the second part of this lesson is that strength that can endure trials only comes from God. Strength that will endure trials only comes from God. Peter needs to learn this lesson. Think about this. When Jesus tells Peter, hey, you're going to deny me, Peter's like unfazed. <laughs> like if Jesus told us, hey, you're going to deny me in less than a day, I think most of us would, would pause and I, let's think about, like search our hearts. I need to think about this. I need to pray about this. But Peter's like, no, 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 no. Jesus, you don't get it. I'm going to die for you. He's just unfazed. He, doesn't, he has no conception of what is coming for him, and so he makes these kind of blasé, like, I will stick with you to the end. Peter's more confident in his ability and his own strength than Jesus is. Because Jesus will walk through the temptation and the trial, but he's going to take hours of agonized prayer later that night, pleading with his Father for mercy and grace to be able to make it through this, where it, I mean, Peter thinks he can make it on his own strength. But he has to learn before he becoming an apostle that strength that endures only comes from God. And specifically, it comes from daily reliance and fellowship with Jesus. Jesus modeled this for his apostles in the way he did in ministry. And in John 5, 19, he tells his disciples, I tell you that the son can do nothing by himself, but he can only do what he sees his father doing. 
Jesus modeled this in that all of his ministry, he's like, I'm, I'm just doing what the Father has told me. I'm only doing what the Father empowers me to do. And this is the model he's giving to his disciples. Peter would be a pillar of the church one day, but it would not be on his own human strength. It would be only on the strength he found from God himself as he walked with Jesus day to day, finding fellowship with him, being strengthened by his spirit. The second part of this lesson is that Peter had to learn the strength that can endure trials only comes from God. Now, Peter's given to us as an, as an example. If we kind of read the story and shake our head, oh, Peter, move on, we, we've missed it, and, and we're in danger of repeating his mistake ourselves. Again, Peter seems so strong, and he thought he was so strong, but in the moment of crisis, when the soldiers actually came, his faith evaporated like a morning mist. And we are no different. We, again, what's just like struck me from this passage is how, how frail Peter was. He didn't realize it. And we're the same way. We may think it's unthinkable that I could ever walk away from Jesus or some sin is, un- I can't fathom ever doing that. And I think we only say that because we haven't been put in the right situation. Peter thought it was unfathomable that he would ever deny Christ until the moment when the soldiers came and they have swords that are very sharp and then everything unraveled. Like Peter, we must seek God's face regularly, daily, his fellowship daily because we're, we're, just, we're weaker than we think we are and we desperately need his strength and his help. Think of it like this. And, and, and it's gonna be regular. It can't be like, if we're seeking God's face once a month, it's gotta be daily. So Ukraine is, has astounded the world in its military success. From my reading, no one expected Ukraine to be able to fight Russia to a stalemate. Everyone thought it'd be over in a couple of days. And there's been a couple of reasons why the Ukraine has been able to have military success. One is, and, and a lot of it certainly comes around their president, Vladimir Zelensky. He's, he's rallied the country in some pretty, Uh, profound ways. I mean, he has single-handedly inspired, galvanized, and shamed NATO in the West to help. (laughs) Um, But that's been one of the reasons why Ukraine has been able to be victorious, is all the military aid and technology that the West has given to them. But if you watch Zelensky, it's like every day he is speaking to some different governmental legislative body in a different country saying, we need more. Give us more. It's not enough. It's not like Zelensky said once in the very beginning, guys, we need help, and then just, every day, he's like, we need more help, we need more. That's the kind of urgency that Christ is communicating to his followers. We don't know what the trials will come for us. Peter had no idea what was coming in 12 hours. None of us have any idea what's coming in 12 hours. That's why it has to be daily fellowship with the Lord, daily crying out to him for grace and strength Strength to endure. That's the second part of the lesson. Strength that can endure trials only comes from God. But the third part of this lesson for Peter is that there is grace when you fall. Peter's warned what's coming. He ignores the warning and he falls. But then look at verse 32. Jesus immediately gets to, and and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Maybe if I say what Jesus didn't say, it'll make this stand out more. Jesus did not say, and when you have turned, if God forgives you, if I choose to forgive you for betraying me, then you can strengthen your brothers. 
It's like Jesus gives him preemptive forgiveness. It's like, Peter, you're going you're, you're gonna to betray me. You're going to abandon me in, in my moment of greatest need. You're going to, you know, like, and you're going to be, you're going to disqualify yourself in the most horrific way. But when you turn back, I'm going to forgive you completely. And I'm going to restore you, and I'm going to use your, the, your, your moment of greatest shame to strengthen my church. Yes, Peter, you'll fall, but there'll be grace when you fall. God, you know, God knows how, God, Jesus knew how weak Peter was, how frail he was. We don't fully understand, but God knows. And so in many ways, God is far more compassionate to us than we are to ourselves or to each other. One of my favorite two verses in the entire Bible is Psalm 103, verses 13 to 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. And we think we're strong, but God knows we're just a pile of dust that'll dissipate in the breeze. And he shows us compassion. He knows our frame. This is the lesson Peter has to learn before he can become an apostle. He's weaker than he thinks, and only by daily fellowship with God and reliance upon God will he be able to endure but there will be grace even when he falls. That's the lesson Peter must learn. But second, again, Jesus wants to warn all of his disciples of the coming adversity. And this is our second point, coming adversity. So again, follow along as I read verses 35 to 38. And he said to them, <clears throat> when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So explaining this text... Jesus is referring to two missionary journeys that the disciples went on in Luke 9 and 10. And Jesus gives some very specific instructions to the disciples when he sends them out. He says, don't take supplies, don't take clothes, don't worry about where you're going to spend the night, because when you go into a village, they're going to offer you hospitality. They're going to feed you, they're going to give you a place to stay, and if they don't welcome you, move on to the next village. And Jesus says, look, did you ever, was there ever a night that you didn't get food? Was there ever a time you didn't have somewhere to stay? No, no, everything was provided. But 36, but now things are changing. Circumstances are going to pivotally change. Institutional Judaism had already rejected Jesus by this point, but the nation was teetering in the balance. Would the people go with their religious leaders, or they go with Jesus. But the next 24 hours, there would be a decisive rejection by the people of Israel. And the circumstances for the disciples after that will be very different. Again, whereas before they could go out into the countryside and find some welcome and some favor with the people, it's going to be over. You can't expect people to welcome you in. You can't expect people to embrace you. It's going to be a very different circumstance. You can even expect violence. That's why he says, get a sword. Now, in verse, what is this, verse 36, 
he says, go get a sword, and it's very confusing. It seems like Jesus is telling his disciples to prepare for armed violence. <clears throat> As a quick side note to explain that, I don't think that's the case, because, again, even though his disciples seem to think that's what he means, when Peter, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the soldiers come, tries to defend Jesus using his sword and actually attacks a servant, Jesus rebukes him. And when we look at the witness of the early church in the face of trial and violence and persecution, they never responded with violence. They always responded by turning the other cheek. And so I think it's clear from the New Testament and from the early church witness, Jesus is not calling his followers to armed resistance. It's a metaphor. In the same way, there's, he's saying that it's not like there's ever a time when we can't step out in faith not being fully prepared or fully provided for. Right? This whole idea of, of, you know, make sure you take a purse and take belongings and, and make sure every, you know, it's metaphor. He's like, things are going to change. There's going to be even violence committed against you. And then in fact, at the very end of verse 38, as they're like, look, Lord, we have two swords. And it says, you know, he says, it is enough. A better way to see that would be Jesus saying, enough of that. They don't get it. He's like, I'm, I'm ending this conversation. You're taking it in a wholly wrong direction. It's kind of a somber way for the last teaching of Jesus to end. But the circumstances are changing. He's trying to prepare them for that. Now, why will these circumstances change? Well, yes, the death of Jesus. But specifically, it'll change because of how people will think and understand Jesus. And Jesus quotes from Isaiah 53 here. I'm going to read the whole verse so we have some context. It'll be on the screen behind me. But Isaiah 53, 12 says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. He makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus would bear the sin of the world on his back, on his shoulders, on the cross. But the people who rejected Jesus, specifically the Hebrew nation in this story, would literally view him as a sinner. Here is a dangerous, blasphemous, deranged heretic who needs to die or there will come judgment on our nation. They really view Jesus as deserving of death. And so that means that those who follow Jesus, you continue to proclaim the way of Jesus, well, they're gonna view you likewise as deranged, dangerous, blasphemous heretics. Be prepared, the circumstances are changing. And this is what we see in Acts. Again, in Acts 8.1, it says, there arose in that day great persecution against the church. This was a very reality that the disciples were gonna walk into. And in fact, many of them would die pretty horrific deaths from torture. Peter would be crucified upside down. James would be burned alive. I mean, John was exiled. This is what they need to prepare themselves for. Now, there's, again, a specific fulfillment in the lives of the disciples, but there's also a general principle that Jesus is trying to prepare every disciple for, even those who live in Louisville, Kentucky in 2022. And this is what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 2.16, where he describes us, those, <clears throat> sorry, describes Jesus and his followers as those, to one an aroma from death to death, to another aroma from life to life. Christ will always be an aroma of death to some, repugnant odious, and to others the aroma of life, beautiful and compelling. In every circumstance, that'll always be the case. 
Christ will be an aroma of death to some, an aroma of life to others. Now, in our current context, there's a lot of talk about the secularization of the West and is it becoming harder to be a Christian in America? And, and I do think the trends don't look very good. But we also want to pause and remember that in every age, authentic discipleship had costs with it. So again, my high school, I grew up in the Bible Belt of Pennsylvania, where there was a church on every corner. Uh, in my high school, our senior class president was also the president of the FCA, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, which is a Christian ministry for athletes. And there'd be over 60 high school students at FCA every week. And so you think, wow, that's, that's, that's pretty cool. You can be a Christian and you know, Christian leader. You can be popular enough to become student president. But this specific student was also known for being a pretty crazy partier and various sexual exploits. And even a very Bible-belty town, the only way you could avoid a cost is if you made peace with certain parts of the world, if you compromise in certain ways. Again, even at the height of Christendom, if you think of, you know, I don't know, what, you know, in Europe in the 1500s or America like in the 1700s, if you tried to follow Jesus authentically in every way, it would cost you, sometimes violently. There's always been a cost to following Jesus because Jesus has always been life to some, death to others. Yeah, there may be more institutionalized difficulties for Christians, but it's, even if it gets worse, it won't be any different in one sense. Jesus is saying, prepare for headwinds. Prepare for the cost of following Jesus. And the question is, are we willing to bear the cost? Now again, in America, the cost that we bear is, is, is you know, we're not gonna go to jail because we're Christians. Um, we're not gonna lose our jobs because we're Christians. And we're, most of the headwinds we experience is, is kind of social pressure. And I was listening to a podcast by a guy named Mark Sayers, who's an Australian pastor. Uh, he's in, interesting. He's, he's definitely not a Baptist, um, but, uh, um, and, but a really interesting Christian thinker. Uh, and he's, there's different types of Christians. Some are the kind of the culture warrior, where it's like, you know, confront the culture and creates very black and white categories. And there's kind of the more engaged culture where like you want to see good things in the culture, we want to transform. He's much more on that side, which is why this statement really stood out to him. Sorry, stood out to me in this podcast. And actually, I went back and listened to it so I could write it down verbatim. It's going to be on the screen behind me. This is what Mark Sayer says, again, about the headwinds we experience. He says, particularly, again, for millennials, one of the hardest things you're going to have to sacrifice is the approval of your peers and even the friendship of your peers. And I listened to that and it just like, it hit me between the eyes. It's like, I, I believe that Christ rose from the dead and he brings forgiveness of sins and there's life in him alone and that apart from Christ there's no hope. Why don't I share that more often? Well, it's a complex question, but I think one reason is I want the approval of my peers, those who I view as equals, as colleagues. As, I don't want them to think I'm weird. I don't want them to look down on me or confuse me with some kind of small-minded bigot. One of the hardest things to sacrifice for us is going to be the approval and even the friendship of our peers. Again, the headwinds that we will face in the circumstances, and, 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 you know, at least for the the near future won't look like church raids and concentration camps, but it will mean losing the approval of our peers at times. Are we willing to sacrifice that? 
And this, again, is why we desperately need fellowship with Christ, daily fellowship. Because even in America, we experience headwinds. Adversity is coming. This brings us to our third point, which is that even in the midst of adversity, even in the midst of the Passion Week, Christ is king, and he will remain king. This is our third point, Christ the king. A consistent theme that we'll see throughout the Passion narrative is as things go from bad to worse to worse to worse to anarchy and chaos and injustice, is that Jesus knows, he's planned it out, and he's in control. Jesus knows, he's planned it out, and he's in control. His disciples are blindsided. Again, they have no idea what's coming. They don't see it coming at all. But Jesus is not blindsided. He gives them clues over and over. He knows what's going on. He knows he's going to be betrayed. He knows exactly how it'll happen. He knows what's coming. In fact, he's planned it out. It's part of God's redemptive purposes for the world. It may seem like things are out of control, but he is still in control. And what's important about this is that we're going to remain faithful in the midst of adversity and hardship. We must be sure that Jesus is still king, even when things are going badly. The only way we're going to remain faithful when we face adversity is if we really know in our bones Jesus is king, even now. If you're a Ukrainian Christian, how do you remain faithful when Russian tanks go rolling through your hometown and you know that there's going to be a crackdown on your ability to worship as there is in much of Russia. How do you remain faithful in that moment? Only again by knowing in the, in the depth of your being, Christ is king, even now, and in some ineffable mystery, even this is part of his plan of redemption. Christ is king. It may sound flippant to, to speak about you know, a Ukrainian Christian like that, or somehow suggesting that an invasion could be within God's plan, how could we attribute something like that to God? How could God be in control? But we have to remember that there has never been a darker night than the night that Christ was crucified. It was the moment when it really looked like evil had vanquished good. Like the Son of God, who was God himself, who came to save humanity, was betrayed by his own beloved, and then died. He ceased to breathe. If there was ever a moment of, of it's time to give up, folks, go home, it was then. But even in that darkest night of all history, Christ is still in control. It's part of his plan for the salvation of many. And so it doesn't matter how dark things may get, or it doesn't matter if, if the forces of darkness may seem to have won, Christ knows he's planned it out. He's still in control. And one day he'll bring it all to a conclusion when he will end sin and death forever, and he will wipe away every tear. And again, there's, a, there's, just, there's mystery in how he works that out. But in all things, we can say Christ knows. He's planned it out. He's in control. In conclusion, Jesus, again, is trying to prepare his disciples that true discipleship, authentic discipleship, it's going to involve trial and temptation, even hostility at times. How can we prepare? How can we remain faithful? 
Well, it's through daily reliance, not upon ourselves, but upon the grace that Christ provides as we seek his face every day in word and prayer, in worship together as body and fasting. That's how we remain faithful. We also remain faithful through living in the knowledge of the hope that our Lord is king, no matter how dark things may appear. Let's pray. Jesus, we, um, our hearts are strengthened as we remember, even in the Passion Week, which seems so dark, and it was so dark, that you remain king, that you provide the strength we need for any trial, any hardship, any hostility. Oh, help us to seek you. Help us to seek you every day, with urgency and necessity, knowing how frail we are, how desperately we need you. Call us to yourself and make us your own. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.